Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. Extremely My next rare safety move by a major. 17 years of Palestinians and Israelis Hi, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And once again, we start our program listening to the cacophony that emanates from the marketplace of ideas. And if you've listened to this program long enough, you understand that it's getting tough out there, to quote from a network television series that was pretty popular for a long period of time. The animus toward Christianity is mounting. In fact, I found it interesting that as we articulate where we are on the timeline of human history, we've gone from being postmodern to post-Christian to now, according to the Oxford Dictionary, a post-truth world. Well, if we follow one whose name is truth, it then pretty much lands us on the conclusion that being identified as a follower of Jesus Christ is going to be tough, and it's going to be tougher out there. And one would also have to say, given the headlines of the day that we often discuss on this broadcast, that we are living in what is tantamount to a very negative world. So how then, if you believe that God is sovereign, and I certainly hope you do, if you believe that like Esther of old, you've been called for such a time as this, I often point out, particularly being in the shadow of the nation's capital, we could have easily have been living in the 1700s when we were fighting for our independence from a king, a monarchy, or we could have been living in the 1800s when the sin of slavery was separating this nation from stem to stern. But instead, God and his sovereignty saw fit that we would be living in the 21st century, where good is called evil, evil is called good, men are doing what's right in their own eyes, and we can't even define what's a man or a woman. And we're making a mockery of the Genesis mandate. So how then does a follower of Jesus Christ live in such a negative environment? So do we engage? Do we disengage? Do we keep our mouth closed? Do we deny the tenets of our faith so that we can be accepted? Um, Do we just dial it down and dilute it and tap out? 
so that we can be accepted. After all, we're called to just love our neighbor, never mind the truth part of that directive in the book of Ephesians. So it gets complex. Well, this is where I turn to Aaron Wren, and I'm so glad that he's with us. He is a consultant and a writer based in Indianapolis. He's a senior fellow at American Reformer. He's a former senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Public Research and a former partner at Accenture. I hope I said that right. He has written extensively on cities and culture and the future of the evangelical church and on men's issue. So he's written a fascinating, intriguing, and thought-provoking book called Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. Get ready. This is going to make you think this hour. Aaron, the warmest of welcomes. Thank you so much for the gift of your time. But thank you even more for writing this book because um, I'm going back through Dr. Francis Schaeffer's book uh, series, How Then Shall We Live? And it's absolutely amazing that the series that was done in the 70s is so applicable to the 21st century. But that question is ever before us. How then, as a follower of Christ, do we live in a sin-sick, fallen, upside-down world? And that's what it looks like when you're east of Eden and you're not yet in glory. So that's where we are today. So, so many people are really struggling to figure out, how do I live in a Christ-honoring way? And how do I live with a world of applied Christianity and what exactly is my relationship with the culture, particularly if I'm told to go and tell? So you tackle a lot of these questions in your book. And for that, I'm very, very thankful. So I have to ask you, what drew you personally to this topic? Well, I came up with this three worlds model that's in the book in 2014 uh, when I saw a series of Christian short films called For the Life of the World. Uh, they were really, really well done. But as I was walking out of the college where I saw them, I said to myself, the culture is starting to change and the world that it's addressed in these films is actually going to be passing away. And we're going to be entering a new phase of American culture. And so I took a bunch of notes on that. And I've always been you know, fascinated by how the world works and uh, just kind of developed these ideas over the years and published them in 2022 in First Things Magazine, an essay that went really viral for them, one of the most talked about articles in the history of the magazine, mm. uh, The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. And then I decided to turn that into a book to essentially expand on, first, helping people understand the world that we're actually in today, and then secondly, thinking about how can we start adapting to it. Yeah. And adaptation is uh, very important, but it's not the same as acquiescing. And that I want to underscore because adapting is something that Christians have always had to do. So you you created a timeline, which I thought was interesting, and I want to get your thinking behind it. You divided the three worlds into what you call the positive world, the neutral world, and the negative world. And you give time frames for each, the positive world, 64 to 94, the neutral world, 94 to 2004, the negative world, 2014 to the present. Now, obviously... There's a reason why you pick those time frames. Can you break those down for us? I'd be fascinated to hear more. Sure. This this is a breakdown of the period of decline of Christianity uh, from roughly the Kennedy assassination, which seems to have marked the beginning of the upheavals of the 1960s, all the way through to the present. Prior to that, we didn't have a state church like in Europe, but we did have a sort of default uh, public religion of a generic kind of Protestant Christianity. You know, half of all Americans went to church in the 50s, for example. And, um, you know, we had prayer in schools, Bible reading in schools. That really all started to come unraveled. Christianity went into decline. And the initial phase, uh, it was in decline, but still basically viewed positively. You know, to be known as a good church going man makes people want to hire you, it makes you seem like an upstanding member of society. 
by the time we get to the neutral world, it's Christianity is no longer seen positively, but it's not really viewed negatively yet either. It's just one more lifestyle choice among many in a pluralistic public square. And then when we get into the negative world around 2014, we hit that second tipping point where the, for the first time in the 400 year history of our country, sort of official elite culture is now negative or at least certainly skeptical towards Christianity. To be known as a Bible-believing Christian uh, does not help you get a job at Goldman Sachs or Google, right? <laughs> quite the opposite. Christian moral norms are now expressly repudiated. And in fact, in some way, you're viewed as the primary threat to the new yes. public moral order. And this mm. is a very disruptive, dislocating uh, situation for America. The dates are interesting. You know, I think you can debate that the actual dates. I I thought about 1989 as the transition from the positive to neutral world because that was the fall of the Berlin Wall. And um, you know, but you know, I, I went with 94 because that was the uh, uh, Gingrich Revolution, oh. and then also the year Giuliani became mayor of New York. Interesting. And you hear the music, I can tell. And I, yeah, yeah. I really want to thank you for that. Thank you for your sensitivity. Let me come back and talk about those days, because one of the questions I had when I was reading was, I wonder if there was a seminal event that caused you to start, for example, the neutral world in 94. So we'll get more of your take on that. And we're just getting started. And what I know is going to be a fascinating conversation with Aaron Wren. His new book is called Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. Back after this. God is always at work in your life, but most of the time you can't see it or understand it. That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Discover how to know what God is doing when life doesn't make sense. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you get a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We're visiting with Aaron Wren, who's a consultant and a writer in Indianapolis. Currently, he is a senior fellow at American Reformer, and he writes on the topics of cities and culture and the future of the evangelical church and men's issues. All of that comes through loud and clear in his newest book, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. So just to reset this again, you looked at three worlds, and this is the idea of Christians adapting because the world has changed. So you talked about the positive world from 1964 to 94, where basically, um, you know, uh, we kind of shared collectively mostly the same values and uh there really was the idea that being a fine, upstanding, church-going man was deemed to be uh, a comment on character that was positive. And then we went to neutral in 1994 to 2014. That's exactly where we were before. And you talked about there were a couple of other events that may have had you back time it, but instead you started it at 94. And I was asking about whether or not there were seminal events that had you pick up these right. different time periods. So please go ahead. Yeah. I don't think there's any one event we can just point to and say this caused things, but I do think there are big milestones along the way. Again, I think the fall of the Soviet Union was a huge one because Christianity was really bound up with the West's moral battle against the atheistic communist system of the Soviets. So in the 1950s, we were adding in God we trust to our money, under God to the pledge. It was part of that. And so as long as the Cold War was ongoing, we were never going to be able to get rid of Christianity. But once the Soviet Union collapsed, all of a sudden now we can sort of, uh, as a society, our elites can decide to unbundle Christianity from what it means to be a Western liberal democratic society. I actually went with 1994 for a few reasons. One, it was the Gingrich Revolution when the Republicans took control of the House representatives for, for the first time in forever. 
And I argue that's probably the high watermark of the religious right in America. And then it was also the year that Rudy Giuliani became mayor of New York City. And it went from a war zone to this incredible place to live. Cities came back. People started streaming back into the cities. And we saw the emergence of this large, educated, urban, progressive demographic that has been so influential in sort of shaping our societies. Um, and of course, cities have always played a big role in sort of shaping the culture. And so that's why I picked 1994 for the shift from positive to neutral. Uh, I think the 2014 date for the shift from neutral to negative is a little more dialed in. Obviously, it was the year before the Obergefell decision that legalized mm -hmm. gay marriage. Mm -hmm. So right in that time frame, something is happening. You know, the left-wing pundit Matthew Iglesias picked 2014 as the start of what he called the Great Awakening, where mm -hmm. uh, you saw that the use of terms like structural racism or white supremacy just took off in, in major news publications. Uh, NYU professor Jonathan Haidt uh, he noted that 2013 is when campuses started to go crazy. So it was really something in, in Obama's second term. There was a major rupture in the culture that obviously went far beyond Christianity, but Christianity was somewhat, I think, bound up in there. It's really hard for people to relate to the fact that in 2008, California, yes, California, the bluest state in the country, voted in a popular vote to ban gay marriage in its constitution. Hmm. President Obama uh, you know, ran as an opponent of gay marriage, citing his Christian faith. You know, by then by 2015, uh, gay marriage is legal nationwide. And today it's just like the, the skirmish line in the culture war, if you want to call it that, is transgendered athletes and girls sports. So that is a massive rupture uh, in a very short period of time. But it's not just sexuality. I mean, we also have seen it in, in the way that there's been the takeoff, for example, in drug legalization around the country, the, you know, uh, taking off all the restraints on gambling, all sorts of things, I think, show that we're now in this, you know, certainly post-Christian environment in America. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I, I think we would be um, forced as you look at your time breakdowns, and I think that they're very insightful. So the culture is in flux. The culture, by definition, is always in flux. Empires rise and fall. In fact, Cal Thomas wrote a wonderful book. Um, uh, that talked about the major empires that are out there. The average life is about 250 years. We're coming up to our 250th birthday, not too far from now. Sexual immorality, debauchery, lawlessness, all of the hallmarks. They're there for every single one of the empires that begin to collapse. So a culture being in flux and devolving is the history of the world. That doesn't surprise me. In the same time period, from the positive through the neutral through the negative, has the church, capital C, universal. And by that, I mean the evangelical church, and we'll get to that term because, as you say, it's as difficult to define as defining jazz. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but has the church changed in the midst of all of this? The world is rapidly changing around the church, but is the church changing through all of this? Certainly. And again, I identify sort of three strategies that evangelicals undertook to respond to this period of decline, two from the positive world and one from the neutral world. In the positive world, that was the culture war strategy and seeker sensitivity strategy. And in the neutral world period, that was the cultural engagement strategy. So I think the culture war, we all know that. That was the religious right. It came out of people like uh, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson in the late 70s seeing kind of that Christianity was kind of going, things were going the wrong way for Christianity and society. And they decided to mobilize and fight back, mobilize politically to take back the country. Of course, they're still with us today. 
The seeker sensitives, people like Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Church in suburban Chicago, Rick Warren at Saddleback Church, they got going around the same time. They saw that people weren't going to church. They saw the decline, but their solution was, we're going to design a church people will want to attend. So Bill Hybels went door to door in suburban Chicago asking people why they didn't go to church. And then he designed a church to appeal to them, getting rid of denominational kind of cruft, he might say, mm. um, you know, informal, contemporary music, topical, therapeutic sermons, et cetera. And this is really the non-denominational suburban megachurch we all know that in some sense is the evangelical mainstream. Then in the 90s, we saw the emergence of this cultural engagement strategy pioneered by people like Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. And this was, you could think of this in a couple of ways. One is a secret sensitivity for the cities, just as Hybels and uh, Rick Warren and others like them reached sort of emerging baby boomer suburbia. The Kellers were reaching this new uh, urban population. You could also think of it as the opposite of the culture war, which is to say, rather than fighting with people all the time, they're like, why don't we take advantage of this pluralistic public square and have a conversation with people and articulate the gospel in a compelling way uh, and maybe win some converts? Hmm. Okay, so we've looked at the three time periods and then the three responses, culture warrior, seeker sensitivity, and cultural engagement. What Aaron Wren does in the book is he breaks this down and then thinking analytically, and that's very much what he does, he offers some strategies for how you and I are going to continue in this extremely negative world. His new book, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. More with Aaron Wren right after this. Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. That's the new book by Aaron Wren, who's a consultant and a writer. He's a senior fellow at American Reformer, and he writes about the future of the evangelical church. So we're looking now, we've, we've looked at the timeline. And let me just say, and I'm, I'm an optimistic realist. I'm not a pessimist by any stretch of the imagination, but I do subscribe to the philosophy of walking through life with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And it's going to get more and more difficult out there to be publicly aligned with Jesus Christ. Um, because I've got, got a book that tells me it is going to get more rough. So I'm not afraid because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and have a sound mind. So in a devolving culture where animus toward Christianity is markedly upticking, what you propose is a strategy. So let me go back to your three categories of responses before. The cultural warrior, the seeker sensitivity, and cultural engagement. We have all three of those manifestations in our culture today. So just as a question, are you saying that those three modalities are okay in their individualistic responses, or are you proposing, and this is a rhetorical question because I've read your book, so hint, um, <laughs> are you proposing a different approach given uh, where we are and the changing in culture right now? Well, I think all three of them got something right because they were all successful at addressing certain uh, problems. And so I think there are elements of all of those that we can certainly carry forward into the negative world. Uh, one of the things that I argue, though, is, you know, when we were in this positive world, we had strategies. When we were in the neutral world, we had strategies. When we entered the negative world, what's our kind of new strategy going to be as we mm. adapt to changing times? And, you know, evangelicalism is nothing if not adaptable. I mean, the main criticism of it in many ways is that it's too adaptable. It's too uh, blown with the winds of the times. But, you know, if you go back to the 50s, 
the uh, Christianity in America was dominated by the mainline denominations. Mm -hmm. And they went into decline, started losing the attendees, and were never able to figure it out, how to adapt. Evangelicalism sort of filled that gap. So I'm optimistic we can do it again. But we haven't really yet come up with what the new thing or things are going to be. The one proposal that was really put out there was Rod Dreher's Benedict Option mm -hmm. from his book in 2017. And evangelicals basically rejected the Benedict Option. You know, so Christianity Today commissioned four people to give their opinion on the book, and basically all of them had significant criticisms of it. And I think part of it, you know, he's Eastern Orthodox and formerly Catholic. I think he didn't appreciate the extent to which things like the monastery wouldn't appeal to evangelicals. <laughs> well, but even so, I think there was kind of a sense of denial. Can and I interrupt? I think, can I interrupt yes. here? Just because uh, for people who don't know about Rod's book, and by the way, if you haven't read that one, I also commend you, Live Not By Lies. But for people who didn't read the Benedict Option, can you just give us the Cliff's Notes on what his thesis was? <laughs> Sure. Well, I mean, he's, I think, basically had a very similar thesis to the negative world. And his idea was that in response, Christians needed to form these tightly knit local communities that would enable them to sustain faith in a more hostile world. Um, so not totally dissimilar from what I'm saying, but I think he's uh, very pessimistic, uh, maybe much more pessimistic than than I am. Or, or maybe than you are. But that was sort of what he was saying. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people misinterpreted it. They they sort of interpreted his head for the hills. Um, but, but nevertheless, I think he was getting at something important, which is one of the things I, I sort of say in my book is, you mm -hmm. know, when, when you're not a moral majority, you know, that's a positive world phrase, if ever there was one, and you're now a moral minority, how are you going to sustain and pass on your faith mm -hmm. to, you know, the next generation. Exactly. And so that's what I, that's what I try to get at. And kind of the, the last three quarters of the book is really focused on that. How should we live, Yes. you know, in three dimensions personally, that is how should we and our, and as individuals and as families respond sort of institutionally, how should our churches, ministries, businesses respond? And then uh, missionally, how do we continue to do mission in this world? How do we engage culturally, politically as well? So those yeah. are sort of the things I tried to look at a little bit. Yep. Let me go, and brilliant, and I love the way you broke down the book. So let me go just this idea about living as a moral minority. Um, there, the writer of Ecclesiastes was spot on. There's nothing new under the sun. I think of my brothers and sisters in first century Rome. They were quintessentially right. a minority, and yet they survived and they grew, and as much as Caesar and Nero and the panoply of other Roman leaders who were polytheistic uh, threatened them, they continued to um, survive. And, you know, the interesting thing, going back, and I was listening to Francis Schaeffer um, as he was talking about um, how then shall we live in his series, and he starts off by taking a look at the collapse of Rome. And not only were they polytheistic, so they didn't have a solid foundation because it was whatever God was the one that you wanted to pray to, so they didn't have a cohesiveness because of their polytheism. But they went after the Christians, not because they were Christians and followed Jesus. They went after the Christians because they were rebels. Their allegiance weren't, wasn't to the government. And so that was the biggest threat, is that they were not people who were uh, supporting the state over everything else. But yet they survived. So my guess, my feeling, my, my positive on this is, so, so what? You're a religious minority. It's happened before. How many of our brothers and sisters in Saudi Arabia, in Vietnam, in communist China are in fact minorities, and yet they survive and they thrive? So should we not just take heart from the fact that 
There's nothing. In fact, we're kind of lazy Christians in the West. We don't understand that price of paying that uh, the price of following Christ, even if it puts you in the category of being a religious minority. You hear the music. So let me leave it with a question mark, but come back if you would and just talk about how even if categorically, demographically, you're looking at nothing but social science. If you as an evangelical are now a religious minority, so so let me get you to respond to that when we return. I, I can tell already we're going to run out of time before I run out of questions about this very thought-provoking book. It's called Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is exactly where we are today. More with Aaron Wren right after this. Here on In the Market with Janet Partial encourages you, enlightens you, engages you, and equips you, I want to ask you to become a partial partner today. This program depends on the faithful and ongoing support of listeners just like you. By supporting this program on a regular, ongoing, monthly basis, you'll receive several benefits that only my partners receive. So please call today, 877-JANET-58, or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We're visiting with Aaron Wren. Aaron is a consultant and writer stationed in Indianapolis. He is a senior fellow at American Reformer. He's a former senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Public Research and a former partner at Accenture. He has written extensively on cities, culture, the future of the evangelical church, and men's issues. So in a very prescient book that really challenges the church to remember whose they are and who they are, and that they've been called for such a time as this. He wrote, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. And that's certainly where we are right now. So you sp- spend most of the book, as I, as you noted before, about living personally, living, leading institutionally, and engaging missionally. Um, but my, my question before the break uh, was really and truly about helping us understand that things are going to get bad out there. They're going to get worse do we we don't disengage no matter what correct yeah i would say you know we have to look at our situation as being very much like how other christians throughout history have always been although our adva- uh, examples may be different from first century rome or uh say what's going on in china where you might end up getting thrown in jail for example i think our society tends to operate with more subtle forms of in maybe more insidious pressures mm-hmm. on people mm-hmm. so As I said, it may be more accurate to say society is skeptical of Christianity than negative because you can identify as a Christian publicly and you won't necessarily get canceled for it. It's just that the contents of your Christianity cannot conflict with secular ideologies. So someone like Reverend Raphael Warnock, who's a U.S. senator, he never gets called a Christian nationalist, for example, because he's not challenging um, some of those things. And so I think we have to be careful that we don't get subtly pulled uh, to realign our beliefs with things that may not be true. Mm-hmm. The example that I like to give of of people that I think were most maybe applicable to our situation was early 20th century Catholicism. You know, America really was a sort of basically anti-Catholic country at that time. And there were a large number of these mostly European immigrants here who said, hey, if we want to uh, survive as faithful Catholics in America, in this Protestant country, what do we have to do? And they said, ah, we have to 
create our own essentially infrastructure to do that. So they created all the parochial schools, the Catholic universities, their own fraternal societies. They had these different rituals and practices that sort of demarcated and sustained community life. And I think those are the sorts of things that we have to do. You know, as part of the traditional mainstream culture of America, we really just assumed the mainstream institutions of society were going to reflect our values. Again, in the 1950s, there was prayer in school. And even when it was kicked out, you could sort of assume the schools were going to teach basically moral principles that you sort of agreed with. Well, today that's not true. And so like minorities in America have always had to do, um, we now have to say, wait, how do we create our own uh, practices, our own institutions to identify, you know, demarcate and sustain our own way of life as evangelical Christians in a country where the mainstream institutions are certainly not going to reinforce those values. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think those are some of the things that we need to think about doing, how to become uh, more of a counterculture, if you will, that is, um, you know, distinct uh, and uh, cohesive from the culture. That doesn't mean hating other people. It doesn't necessarily mean fighting with other people all the time, but it means being able to have a strong community of our own uh, as not a place to go hide in, but as a sort of a home base from which to do mission and to have a strong place in which to invite people into uh, as we carry out the Great Commission. You anticipated my question. So how then, going back to Rod and the Benedict option, we don't want to be monastic. We don't want to retreat. We don't want to live lives as separatists. And I think you just gave me the answer when you talked about this goes to the third part about missionally. So in other words, we prepare with solidity and then we send them out. So in other words, it's right. not a total disengagement because that would belie where we're told to go. The mess, the muck, the mire is exactly where we're told to go. Right. Well, you know, and you can't give somebody something that you don't have yourself. I mean, if we are in every way conformed to the world, you know, what are we actually offering people? Mm -hmm. So I think we have to be distinct from the world. And again, that that doesn't have to be, you know, in a hateful, you know, spirit. But we just need to say, look, you know, that's what they do. You know, they do that out there. That's not what we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, we need to have that sense of of what, um, you know, makes us different. And so one of the examples I give that I think has is, is already been happening organically because people are seeing this is the Christian education movement. Yes. As we've had the rise of homeschooling, classical Christian schooling, other forms of schooling. And people are realizing, look, you know, public education, you don't have to be anti-public schools. To, to realize, wow, but that might not be the best option for our children. So like, just like the Catholics built their schools, uh, you know, 100, 125 years ago, now we're building our schools. And so those are the sorts of things that we have to be doing to, uh, you know, adjust, if you will, to, the, to this world. Exactly. So let me break down these three categories of living personally, leading institutionally, engaging missionally. And under the living personally, you, you touched on it before about you can't give something to somebody that you don't already have. So you take three key words, obedience, excellence, and resilience. How does all of that factor into living personally? Well, I was very inspired by uh, this, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said there's two people, the one who built their house on the rock and one who built their house in the sand. And the difference between the two is that the person who built his house on the rock is the one that heard Jesus's words and did them, put them into practice. In other words, are we actually serious about being obedient to what he's called us to do? 
And, you know, it's sort of been sunny days for Christians in America for a very long time. Uh, but, you know, so we haven't really had our foundations necessarily tested. And, you know, whether there will be a flood, I don't know, but we could certainly see storm clouds. So that's where we need to be taking stock of what we're actually called to do in the Bible in order to prepare uh, for those times, certainly in terms of obedience. Now, our our you know, our obedience to some set of commands doesn't save us. You know, we're saved by God's grace, but we are told you should do these things. And therefore we, you know, I think need to do them. You know, similarly when, you know, it's difficult, more difficult than ever to get married and stay married. So we need to bring new levels of focus, excellence, and intentionality to, you know, to our marriage. And we can't just mail it in. Like maybe my grandparents could just kind of they didn't have to worry about a divorce. They didn't have to worry. Um, you know, we certainly do. So the degree of difficulty dial on life has been turned up just in general in America. And so we have to like elevate our game in response. And then in being resilient, you know, I think the key there is we have to be intentional about the decisions we're making, about where to live, about what kind of occupations to go into, about what sort of financial profile to adopt in life. You know, some people might be very suited constitutionally and by their background to live in a place like Washington, D.C. You know, not every not everybody should do that. Yes, and so amen. I think we we need to you know, we need we need to think about that. One thing I did, I moved from New York City to back where my wife and I are from in Indiana. We had a young child. That makes sense. You know, and I'm now in a suburban environment, uh, you know, that for the first time in my life, basically, and I'm close to my family. Uh, you know, we're we're yeah, trying to avoid, you know, maxing out our spending, things of that nature to give us margin in case, you know, God forbid something would happen. Right. And uh, so I think those are the sorts of things we ought to be thinking about in sort of our individual life. And of course, exactly how that plays out for each person is going to depend on their own circumstances, their own conscience, their own faith walk, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Wow. Um, let me linger here a little bit because it really does start with each of us individually. The other thing, too, is, um, and, and it's implied in what you're saying, but if we're not grounded in the Word of God, then all of this is a conversation that's meaningless, isn't it? Yes. And I, I always make clear, I am not a pastor or a theologian, and this is not a work of theology. But I said, right. if you're writing a book to Christians, you can't neglect you know, the most important thing, which is you know, putting your walk with God first. And I think we've we, we've tended to read, you know, all those passages, count the cost right, uh, right. or uh, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Or I count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And we just sort of breeze over those passages because we could kind of nod. But, you know, we didn't it, it really didn't seem that applicable, I think, to many of us. Well, now, again, I don't know what's going to happen to any of us. Um, you know, I, I don't think we're going to end up in a China like situation by any means. Nevertheless, the prospect of even having a hit to our social status, have some friends stop liking you, that's uncomfortable. And so we have to decide, all right, are we all in on this thing yeah. or are we not all in? Because, you know, as we know, being lukewarm is not a good place to be. Uh, no, no. It has everything. I think something was spinning, if I get that right. I, I think I do, yeah. Well, on the resilience, could I add the word courage? Because yeah. Uh, I could not agree with you more. It's one of the reasons why we talk so often to representatives from the persecuted church globally, because I think by comparison, we have it very easy here in the United States. And the twofold reason I like to talk to people representing the persecuted church are, number one, it makes us very grateful for the liberties that we do have endowed by our creator and inalienable, um, where our brothers and sisters don't have those same kinds of rights. 
And number two, I think it has a way of sweeping away the cobwebs of complacency here in the United States. We get very lackadaisical. There's a church on every corner and a Bible on every table. And so we really don't know what it's like to count the costs, no matter what, to travel through light lightly because um, we don't know what the future holds. So courage is, if things are going to get worse, are we willing to count the cost? And that's inherent, I think, in what you said on this idea of really and truly looking at whose we are in a markedly different way. When we come back, I knew this would happen, Aaron. I, I'm going to run out of time before I get to ask you all the questions I have about your excellent book. Let me talk about institutions, which I thought was a fascinating part of your writing, and then also missional, what do we do? So the book is called Life in the Negative World, where we are, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. Aaron Wren's the author and our guest back after this. is our guest. He's the author of Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. It's really a very thought-provoking book. So he's challenging us on our living and our leading institutionally and engaging missionally. We've touched briefly on the living personally and worked our way through the words obedient, excellent, and resilient in leading institutionally. He's talked about institutional integrity, community strength, and ownership, and there's so much in every one of those categories. But in this section of the book, you talk about recovering our sexual economy, interesting coupling of words. Talk to me yeah. a bit about that. Sure. Well, you know, it's kind of widely known that birth rates are in big time decline in America. Marriage rates are in decline. You know, a significant um, share of you know, millennials and Gen Z are never going to get married, never going to have kids. And then, of course, you know, pornography has gone wild uh, on the Internet and, and things of those natures. And I think, you know, and, and we've also, of course, know that although divorce rates are lower among um, evangelicals who attend church regularly, you know, we still have a divorce rate that's too high. And so I think this is one where we really need to, uh, I think it's critical that we are differentiated from the world because, again, what we're seeing in the church is a rise of, you know, long-term singles. And let's be honest, as I said earlier, it's hard to get married today. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who would like to get married and can't find someone to marry. It's like, what what can I do? Mm -hmm. And what I've seen, though, I think in response is this growing movement within the evangelical church to instead of trying to fight back against these trends and help people, you know, find marriage and children, instead trying to essentially normalize long-term singleness. Uh, you'll hear a lot about the idolatry of the family or the the gift of singleness and things of that nature. And clearly we want to be a welcoming place for singles. And there are some people, as the Bible said, who sort of have a natural gift for staying single, like maybe Paul did. Uh, but I think you know, being married and having kids is the normative pattern of human life. And when people want that and they can't find it, that's not good. And so we need to, again, create a communities where, you know, people are not watching porn, where they're staying married, where they're getting married, where they're, you know, having the children uh, that they desire. And, you know, it's like, it's sort of a healthy, um, a healthy place. And I think that's one of the, the key areas where we have to have a sort of different way of life. I think, from the world. Because again, if all of our trends are essentially the same as the world's, but just a little bit better, uh, I don't think we're really authentically living things out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's well said. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me, just in deference to time, 
ask you to touch a bit on the engaging missionally. And this is where I think you and Rod are different because this is not about the monastic experience. It can't be when you say, be a light, be a source of truth, be prudently engaged. So some of this should be self-evident, but it bears repeating. Talk to me about being a light. What does that mean in a darkening world? Well, what I see is, you know, in our world today, there's a lot of pain. And I mean, we have declining life expectancy in America, you know, record high overdose deaths, suicides are very high. You know, when this world does things like we legalize all these drugs, we legalize phone gambling, all these things just cause ruin in a lot of people's lives. And, um, you know, whenever uh, things are, you know, kind of dark for people, that's where I think often the light of Jesus Christ can shine through. And the church has, I think, done a great job in trying to reach a lot of those people. And, you know, I think, so I think that's, that's something for us. And I think this idea of like having a, a different kind of way of life with our families and our church, it can attract people. People can see it. You know, too often, for example, we want to put our healthy marriages under a bushel because we're afraid of making single people feel bad and I understand that impulse. But if we, if we can show that, wow, this is, this is a, a place where you can get help, right? If you have a drug problem, this is a place where, you know, we help sustain and th- families. I think it, I think it is attractional. And I think again, that the uh, degree of pain and suffering in our world is a great opportunity for us to share the gospel because, you know, nothing, as they say, you know, uh, makes you more open to Christ than hitting rock bottom. And sometimes some ways, you know, that can be, you know, redeemed for salvation. Yes. So very true. Source of truth. Talk to me about that. You have a section here about evangelicals and gender. And yes. Again, we are seeing discrimination. We are seeing bias. We are seeing bigotry. We're not seeing outright persecution. However, we're moving categorically when you can lose your job if you don't, as a professing believer, use somebody's preferred pronouns. So we're on the cusp of things changing here. Talk to me about uh, being a source of truth. Yes, this is one where I really got interested in really the, the topic of Christianity when I saw a decade ago all these young men who were not going to church were instead turning to these secular influencers. And this was even before Jordan Peterson came along. And then, of course, Jordan Peterson got huge, and Joe Rogan and Jocko Willink, and of course, the infamous Andrew Tate. And, you know, really a guy like Jordan Peterson, he got famous for really two things. First was when he said, I will not comply with this Canadian pronoun law if they pass it. The second was when he went into an interview on the UK's Channel 4 in front of a very hostile interviewer and stood his ground calmly holding his frame and saying things like, wow, men and women are actually different and they vary on these psychological factors, which of course he was a PhD in psychology, so he knows that stuff. And so having the courage to state things that were true really drew people to them like moths, like a flame. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is this sense in like, as you mentioned courage earlier, people are hungry for someone to show courage. And, um, you know, if we can do that and do it in a way that is responsible and not just about being a provocateur or a rhetorical bomb thrower, I think that's the lane we want to be in. I agree. I agree. Oh, Aaron, I've got 30 seconds. Why did you choose to use the word prudently before engaged? (laughs) Because we want to stay engaged, but we also have to understand, like, for example, a lot of what we support is simply unpopular in the world. Mm -hmm. We're not going to pass it politically. So what do you do in that situation? We have to engage in a way that is wise, understanding what we can and cannot accomplish. So that's at the end. Prudence is wisdom, basically. 
Exactly right. Wow. Aaron, there's so much in this book, and I am unfortunately uh, bowing in submission to the tyranny of the clock. Let me just suffice it to my friends to say that if you've enjoyed this conversation, Aaron has so much more in here. You really did take a consultant's approach to this, as though you were consulting pastors and the church capital C Universal in America about given the reality that we are in a negative world when it comes to Christians' relationship to the culture. Now that's going to put forth some interesting challenges for us. And what Aaron does with his analytical mind, you know, when you work at the Manhattan Institute, when you're working in American Reformer, this is how you think. When you're in the tech industry, he was a former partner at uh, Accenture, you're looking at analytics and you're looking at ways in which you can respond. We need thinkers like Aaron. And that's what he does, is he puts forth a thoughtful challenge to the church to remember again whose we are, who we are, and that we've been called for such a time as this. So therefore, borrowing from Francis Schaeffer again, how then shall we live? Excellent book, Aaron. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the conversation. And thank you, friends. We'll see you next time on In the Market with Janet Parshall.